At least the Jimmy Stewart version had that giant rabbit who ran the savings and loan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this very special non-denominational holiday fun fest edition of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we saw, we finally realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke comes from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the George Bailey to my Uncle Billy, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you doing today, Nate? Feeling honored to be compared to George Bailey, um, but I'm sorry that you're Uncle Billy in this scenario. No, he's, he's so sweet and like, yeah, I mean, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, but he's he's he's, he's a got a lot of pet squirrels and stuff. Yeah, and like a and a crow. I don't really. I it, we'll get into it. But uh, and since this is our very special holiday episode, we also have a very special guest joining us this week. He's the co-host of one of Canada's top film and entertainment podcasts, the Movie Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Daniel Baptista. Hello there. How are you doing today, Daniel? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it is my pleasure. I love what you both are doing with this show, and I am. Honored to be here on this non-denominational episode, so thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. This week, we watched Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. You might remember this movie from such Simpson episodes as Season 2's Two Cars in Every Garage and Three Eyes on Every Fish and Simpson and Delilah and The Way We Was. Season 3's When Flanders Failed and Bart the Lover and Dog of Death. Season 5's The Last Temptation of Homer, Season 6's The PTA Disbands and Fear of Flying, Season 8's My Sister, My Sitter, Season 9's Natural Born Kissers and Miracle on Evergreen Terrace, and Season 11's Beyond Blunderdome and Grift of the Magi. Needless to say, this is clearly one of the top referenced films on The Simpsons. So, Daniel, one of the things that we love to do on this episode is we, we ask the person who brought the film to the other person. We like to ask them to sum the movie up in a sentence. But since you're our special guest, we're going to bestow that honor onto you. So how would you put you on the spot? We're going to put you on the spot and, <laughs> and bestow you it. with this one, this wonderful honor. If you had to write a short, like, Twitter-length summary of the film, how would you describe it? Uh, <laughs> I would say, you know, the man wishes he was never born and sees what life is like without him. Beautiful. I think that's, yeah, that's that pretty much sums it up. Although, well, and we're going to get to this. It's very late in the game that that plot point comes up. But we're, 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 we're not true. jumping ahead. We're it's not very true. Ahead. It's that's very part true. of the beauty of the movie, though, I, I think. Anyway. Uh, well, we'll, get <laughs> we'll get into that. We'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Daniel, I mean, obviously, I asked you to be on the show because you're a friend of the podcast and everything. But I also found out that you're a big fan of the film. So what is your history with It's a Wonderful Life? Is this something you grew up watching? Is it something that you came to later in life? What's your sort of story about it? So I definitely grew up watching it. It's one of those films that growing up watching cable TV, obviously, when everyone still had cable TV, that's a that's a film that was always on. But mm. my biggest memory of It's a Wonderful Life is actually when I was really, really young, my dad and I and my sister were going Christmas shopping and my mom loved this film growing up. And there was a bunch of other films that she loved. And we actually had to like special order them on like VHS cassette. And we gave it to her on Christmas. And we still have that VHS cassette Aww. of her opening it up and being like surprised because, you know, movies like this, when they were re-released, like it was a big deal. Because totally. when they weren't in circulation, you couldn't find them. 
So to actually own them, and that's the copies, though, like we still have those VHS copies downstairs. Like not that I watch them anymore, but <laughs> the fact that that's the, we had it and that's what we used for like 10 years, we watched those VHS cassettes and then we upgraded to the DVD version and then the Blu-ray version and then now with the 4K remaster that's out. But that really is my biggest memories. I think that was very much bestowed from my mom who loved the film growing up. And, you know, we're in an era where I think all of our families kind of grew up watching it as well, too. So it's been part of their kind of zeitgeist growing up. And then coming into our generation, it's it's been a known entity for for everyone, which makes sense why I think we see it referenced so often uh, on The Simpsons, because it very much is in the DNA of everyone growing up who watches Christmas movies like that is the Christmas movie you watch. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, this is one of my dad's favorite Christmas movies. And I remember the year he sat us down to watch it. And it's like, you're right. It's funny that it's, it is this sort of cultural touchstone for a generation. And then that generation sort of bestows it onto the next. Nate, what's your story? Cause I'm pretty sure your story is a little bit similar to mine and that you came to this a lot later in life. Yeah. So my family didn't really watch it growing up. My parents weren't big, like, movie people. We ne- we didn't own almost anything on VHS. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. But um, Apart from Black Beauty. Yes, except for Black Beauty. <laughs> oh, yeah, we had Black Beauty. Um, <laughs> so I was introduced to it by my wife, uh, who's American, and she grew up with it, right? And her family loves it as well. And so I think I watched it maybe for the first time when I was in college or maybe soon after graduating, and like immediately fell in love with the movie and just was really touched by it. I think for me, and you know, this is something we'll talk about more, but I think I cry at weird parts of this movie. <laughs> and I think it's partly because Frank Capra really gets to me and his whole take on like the American dream and the power of the individual and all that sort of stuff like hits me in this particular way. And so I'm I'm often crying like, pretty early in the movie, <laughs> um, like the inspiring speeches and stuff. So that's the part that always stuck with me. And ever since then, we've like watched it every single year. I love that. Adam, what about you? Do you have history with this movie? I mean, you mentioned that you were sort of late coming to it as well. Yeah. So as I said, this is always one of my dad's favorite Christmas movies. But weirdly, like we never watched it growing up. We didn't get a copy until I was also in university and I went home one weekend to like put up our Christmas tree because that was always a big thing in our family. We got a real Christmas tree and we put it up, you know, the first weekend in December. So I think I came home for the weekend to do that. And we were doing the classic thing of like, oh, what movie should we watch tonight? And we had already, you know, watched the Santa Claus and all the other stuff that me and my sister always watched. And so my dad's like, well, why don't we finally sit down and watch It's a Wonderful Life? It's, you know, one of my all time favorite movies. And so we did. And. The thing to understand, though, is that this was happening about two or three weeks after uh, a long-term relationship that I was in ended. So I was not necessarily in the best headspace to begin with. And as much as this film has a very uplifting ending, there's a lot of darkness in this movie. And so watching this movie when you're kind of depressed and at a low point... It was a very different experience, I think, than most people probably have watching it. And as a result, it sort of tainted my feelings towards the film. So I didn't revisit it, honestly, since then. It wasn't until watching it for this show that I kind of came back to it. So even though it's something that I'm obviously familiar with, and like I said, it is my dad's favorite Christmas movie. It's funny, my my sister 
did not enjoy the movie either. I think she actually like left halfway through because she found it so boring. My sister's not big on it either. She 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 likes it. She respects it, but she's like, I don't want to watch this. Oh, interesting. Well, and so there's been other years where we're trying to come up with what to watch, and because I want to humor my dad, I'm like, well, why don't we watch It's a Wonderful Life? And my sister's like, oh, no, we're not gonna watch that boring, depressing <laughs> thing again. Like, no, we're let's like I'd rather rewatch the Santa Claus three, and I'm which you know that's not worth watching at all but i mean there's um, some parallels between both these movies though (laughs) there really are (laughs) so anyway so yeah that's that's all to say that this is this is one that i was a late comer to and this is not made into the annual rotation so i was really looking forward to sort of coming back to it and sort of examining it now with fresh eyes before we dive more into the film though i i do also want to circle back to the whole simpsons connection daniel what is your what is your relationship with the simpsons you know i'm a huge fan of the simpsons i I don't think i'm going to come anywhere close to the hold that both of you have on it but it's just one of those shows that when i was growing up i was lucky because we grew up into the best generation of the simpsons so the episodes that were always airing on TV because that would be a show that whenever it would get syndicated on another network, I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to watch a random episode of this. <laughs> so like, I don't think I've ever watched the Simpsons beginning to end. I've always, I, I feel like I've watched the first 10 seasons of the show in the most random order because you would watch <laughs> it whenever it was on TV and whatever channel you were on. But my biggest connection to it is an, weirdly enough in my grade 10 history class, my teacher would always put it on in the background. We had like one of the TVs in the corner of our classroom. Oh, interesting. And whenever we would like be working, like if it was a whatever we were doing that period or we were doing some like like solo work, he would put on like an episode of the Treehouse of Terror or just one of the <laughs> random DVDs or VHS cassettes that he had and we'd just be watching it in the classroom. So I always just whenever I think of the Simpsons, I weirdly associate it with grade ten history class, which is <laughs> so bizarre. Which is extremely That's bizarre, funny. But. I mean, that is funny, but also, too, like, at the school that Nate and I went to, The Simpsons was literally part of the curriculum, because wow. in grade nine, we studied the monomyth and the hero's journey, and so right. we watched Star Wars, which is sort of like the de facto, you know, it's written to be exactly the beats of the Joseph Campbell thing, but there was an episode of The Simpsons that deals with that, and so we watched that, and then I, I there were a couple episodes that I distinctly remember, like, taping and then donating to the English department so that they could, like the, the Hamlet episode and stuff. So yeah, Simpsons in high school, part of the curriculum, I'm 100% behind. So Oh yeah, definitely. But yeah, but, but now mostly uh, whenever I'm watching the Simpsons, just like myself or Shay or Anthony will just put on an episode while we're just hanging out or, or chilling. Cause it's just, it is such a comfort show in that way too. Or it's this show you put on like, Oh, I'm just going to eat some lunch or eat some dinner. And you put something on cause you want to you don't want to pay attention too much because you're familiar with it, but you just want something that is comforting to watch, right? And I think The Simpsons, especially that first, you know, those first 10 seasons are some of the best, you know, animation and stories that, on TV. And is there, like, a specific movie parody moment that, like, sticks out to you of, like, you distinctly remember seeing first in The Simpsons and then discovering the movie later on? I definitely think, you know, Citizen Kane is a, is a big one. And then obviously... With It's a Wonderful Life, there are so many of that and like Mr. Burns and everything too being Potter. Totally. Yeah, reading that list of episodes that references this, you get a sense of just how impactful and meaningful this film obviously was to the staff as a whole on The Simpsons. I mean, Nate, I don't remember where this ranked in the large database that you put together, but this feels like this has to be right up there with Citizen Kane and The Wizard of Oz. I mean, just the, the number of episodes that I listed in the intro there. I mean, that's that's quite a lot. So right now in our count and still kind of 
floating around a little bit, but it's like number eight. So oh, wow. it's in the top 10, you know. Um, Which is, when you consider the fact that this is a holiday film and not Star Wars, you know, these sort of, like, the most iconic films of all time, right. that is pretty remarkable. I mean, like, for the record, again, right now, it is above Psycho. It's above mm. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, I was going to say 2001 is probably up there, too. So it's another big one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, above Planet okay. of the Apes, which we've, we've already covered. Well, to that end, Nate... Why did you decide to choose this film of all of the films for a non-denominational holiday special? Why It's a Wonderful Life? Especially if it's a film that, like, you didn't necessarily grow up loving. Yeah, I think this movie is a really beautiful movie. It's a movie that, again, I cry throughout this entire movie. I counted it the last time I watched it. It's five times. Oh, wow. And every time I watch it, it brings me something different. That's one of the things I love about it. Something different stands out to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of The Simpsons, I do think that there's actually like a lot that you can learn about The Simpsons from this movie as well. Um, you know, Daniel, you mentioned like Mr. Burns, like we'll talk about that a little bit more. But also even just like the way they tell the story, I think, is very Simpsons-ish. The structure is like exactly the same as The Simpsons episode where it's 90% downhill and then 10% uplifting at the very end, right? <laughs> and they, it's like this amazing magic trick where, you know, you're watching something so depressing for a lot of it, where it's just like compromises and, you know, like things not going the right way. And then at the end, they just have this one moment where you're like, and then it was a happy ending. And you're like, ah, oh, that was so satisfying. But probably if you think about it a little bit more, it's like, actually, there was a lot of things that didn't get totally worked out. You know, that like if you watched another hour, maybe, you know, there'd still be some problems. So anyway, I think it's a very, very interesting movie in its own right and also has a lot to say about The Simpsons. Well, to that end, I want to get to my scorching hot take about this film. So here, you know, I warned Nate that there was a scorching hot take coming up. So I hope you guys are ready. I'm ready. I'm so excited to hear this. It's it's in all caps in the in our notes document. <laughs> all right, here it comes. Adam's scorching hot take about Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Pretty good movie. Damn. <laughs> no, I mean, I, look, I, I I went into this with reservations because, like I said, my my previous associations with it are not from a the best time in my life, and it you know it's a movie from the forties, and movies from the forties tend to be stylistically and you know structurally very different from the type of film that we're used to today so i was really sort of gearing up for it to be a bit of a slog and i was pleasantly surprised at how much i did overall enjoy it however um because <laughs> there's always a however and it's interesting that nate you bring up the sort of structure of it because i think the structure is really weird to me and I think if it were to be remade today, which God forbid, I, like, I hope they never do it, it would be handled very differently because the whole premise is like George Bailey contemplates suicide and then he's shown what the world would be like without him and realizes that he's really important. That's really only the last 20 minutes of the movie. Like, you yeah. don't actually get to that point. But, like, the key premise that everybody remembers from It's a Wonderful Life and that has been parodied ad nauseum in, like, the, there's, the Muppets have done it. That 70s show has done it. The Simpsons have done it. All of these things throughout the last 60 years, 50 or 70 years. I'm bad at math. <laughs> but all of these parodies over the years, that's the part they parody. And it's literally, like, the last... 30 minutes of the movie. And so this is my real scorching hot take. It's not really a Christmas movie because I'm sorry if like if 
only 20% of the movie. No, not a bad take. If if only 20% of the movie is set at Christmas, I don't think that constitutes a Christmas movie. No, no. That's my hot take. It's interesting, though. So many Christmas movies fall into that bucket. No, but it's see that not the ones I like. I all of my favorite <laughs> Christmas movies are distinctly about Christmas. They take right. place solely on or right. mostly on Christmas. And I also like. I'm also up there with like Sound of Music is not a Christmas movie. I don't understand how people say that's a Christmas movie just yeah, because they replay it, it at is, Christmas. It, it, it has is, nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> Nazis, Nazis, you know, defeating the Nazis is not very Christmas like to me. But anyway, that's a whole other argument for another episode. But truly, I do think it's really interesting that this whole thing that everybody remembers of the film really only happens in the last 20 minutes. Well, so 30 ish minutes on that note, there's actually a really good reason for that. And uh, I'll tell you all about it. We're going to get to it. But take me take Nate. We always like to start our episodes with the sort of background to the film, the history of the film. How did we get there? Take us on a journey Introduce me to, you know, the origins of It's a Wonderful Life and Frank Capra. I guess I'll just start with the back of the book of the short story that this movie's based on, right? Hmm. So it's based on this short story called The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern, who apparently was mostly a Civil War historian, but he wrote, like, a couple books, and this is one of his books. So the back of the book just says... On the night before Christmas, a mysterious stranger saves George Bailey from a moment of despair by giving him a precious opportunity to understand the difference that his unassuming life makes to those around him and to the world. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually sounds almost exactly like your one sentence description, Daniel, as well. I totally didn't just read that before. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. But yeah, no, it's 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 very true. Like when you when you really boil this movie down, it does come to that. But like like we were saying, it really is the last act of this film, which I think makes it you know perfect for sitcoms and different shows to parody it or use that structure. Because I feel like so many sitcoms you would see will do like a bottle episode. It's like, hey, how can we keep something fresh and different like oh let's do an episode where you know the main character was never born and you get to you get to bring your characters into different scenarios that we haven't seen them before right yeah totally exactly and and so the the short story is literally just the last act of this film basically it doesn't have any of the backstory wow interesting it starts with him on the bridge he meets a stranger who is not an angel incidentally in the short story but just a mysterious stranger who then grants his wish and then he goes back to town and it's all the things that it's most of the things you see in the movie where he sees the building alone is gone and he meets his wife and his wife has a different life. So it's it, that's actually what the short story is. OK, interesting. So I actually read it for in preparation for this because it's not very long. And uh, yeah, it's a good little story. But definitely, I feel like the big thing that the movie did is it, it added all of the backstory, the first two thirds of the movie, basically. <laughs> yeah. And then it also really heightens everything. Like the stakes mm-hmm. are a lot higher in the movie than in right. the book. The book's a little bit more subtle and not not so um, extreme one. Right. It has that decidedly like post-war 1940s style of like the mm-hmm. drama is so much larger and the stakes are so high. And I do think that kind of dates the film somewhat, but it also sort of adds to its charm. Right. Is, is, like, does Clarence have more backstory? Because, like, the movie opens with, like, the Milky Way or, like, the stars in the sky. Like, is there anything <laughs> yeah. like that in the short story as well, too? Or is it just, like, no. he's a stranger? He's just a stranger. Doesn't even have a name. 
Oh wow! And not not distinctly an angel or anything. He's just a, a guy who shows up on a bridge and is like, "Oh, don't do it." He doesn't <laughs> jump in the water either. He just kind of stops him, and then George makes his wish, and he makes it come true, and that's it. The thing that like strikes me about it is that it, you know this isn't a, a, a very exciting take, but it's a lot like a Christmas Carol, right? Mm-hmm. But like the thing that struck me is that it's almost like you know, do you know the character Bob Cratchit in A Christmas Carol? Of course, so he's, of course. Yeah, so it's like it's like what if the ghost visited Bob Cratchit instead of Scrooge, right? Right. That's kind of what this story is. Is it's like he's the everyday guy who works at the bank and is a good person, has a nice family, all that sort of stuff. He's not the miser, but he might also be in trouble. And right. like that's, I feel like the what if that this movie sort of comes out of. This also has a crazy story about how it actually became a movie. Does do you do either of you know this at all? I know nothing. No. I know nothing. So, okay. So this is, this is wild. Basically, uh, Philip Van Doren Stern, who's the, who's the author, couldn't get this thing published, right, at all. So eventually he just decided, I really love this story. I'm just going to print it on pamphlets and send it out to people as a Christmas card. He printed 200 himself, sent it out as a Christmas card. And it somehow, I guess through his agent or something, ended up finding its way to RKO. And they bought the rights. <laughs> Wow. Um, so pretty wild. And then three different people took a shot at the screenplay. Didn't really, none of them really kind of stuck. They, it didn't get made. And that's when Frank Capra eventually bought the story and the scripts for his new company after he got back from the war in like 1945. And so like, that's how it kind of found its way to him. And he also got really excited about the story. That's fascinating because I don't know if you know this, you know, tying it back to A Christmas Carol, which for the record, that's my de facto Christmas story. Sure. You know, like the Muppets I version, up, of course. Of course. Well, espe- yeah. especially, especially the Muppets version. <laughs> but my grandfather worked in radio. And so growing up, we had a lot of old radio broadcasts from the 40s and earlier. And so I grew up listening to these old radio broadcasts of A Christmas Carol. And my dad read me A Christmas Carol at a very early age. And then, yes, of course, I'm up. It's Christmas Carol, the greatest Christmas film ever made. Don't, like, that's <laughs> the, don't fight me on it. It's the, it's the greatest. Um, but A Christmas Carol, similarly, Dickens was basically, he had had a string of flops when he wrote that. And basically, nobody wanted to touch it. And my understanding is that he basically was like, I know I've written the best thing I've ever written. I'm just going to self-publish this. And I'm going to go all out. And he, like, decked it out with, like, gold foil and these, like, elaborate illustrations. And he just sort of said, I I know that this is going to be a success. And sure enough, he was right. I I think there's, like, some stat of it's, like, the longest continuously in print book of all time or something like that. But it's, it's so interesting that like this story, which certainly owes, you know, some of a debt to a Christmas Carol, like you Mm -hmm. say, Nate, you know, has such similar origins of like the author just knows that they've got something special and just takes that risk. And it obviously pays dividends. So it's also interesting seeing just how, you know, both in a Christmas Carol and, you know, it's a wonderful life. We're seeing two characters at Christmas Carol. We have a very rich character, but in What's Wonderful Life, very much not the case. But we're seeing a person just really brought down to the base of their humanity and just trying to survive. And it's, and it's always interesting setting that around Christmas time. Because at the end of the day, it's like you want to feel like joyous and happy and holly and jolly. But it's like you're also having someone who is just going through like the most crucial moment of their life and getting through the other side of that. So uh, I, I'm curious, like with The Christmas Carol... Could you still tell that story? Will it still have the same effect, even with its wonderful life, if it didn't take place at Christmas time? 
Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point, Daniel. I think because you're right. It's both of those stories. As much as they have these beautiful happy endings, they they very much are just like let's break these characters down to build them back up again, which is not a particularly like festive thing. But I think that right. it sort of speaks to the fact that as wonderful as the holidays can be for a lot of people, they are also these times that are sort of mixed with melancholy. And, you know, as I've gotten older and and formed my own traditions, I miss the other things of like moving out on my own and not being with my family necessarily or the family members who are no longer with us. So like the holiday tends to be tinged with this sort of like light and dark. Well, and I, I think the interesting thing too is I might be, you know, I'm, I'm kind of talking on my ass here, so we'll just cut this if I've got it wrong. <laughs> but I think that, a Christmas Carol actually helped kind of reinvigorate interest in Christmas as a holiday. Yes, period. that is that is accurate. Right? It, it like before that, it was kind of just like this thing that was around. It wasn't really like thought of as a big holiday, and it sort of brought back a lot of traditions that like yes. were kind of just in these little pockets in England and in other places, and made them a big deal. The whole idea of like Christmas spirit is kind of like partly from that story. So it's like, I think it is, you know, intrinsically tied to what that story is all about, you know? Well, but this is not an episode about A Christmas Carol. It's not. So. <laughs> <laughs> but so, t- so Nate, tell me a little bit more about Frank Capra. The famous joke that my dad always made was like, ah, Frank Capra, Capricorn. You know, he made these really cheesy, <laughs> uh, schmaltzy, emotional movies, which this, this movie certainly has moments that are, you know, could be described as cheesy but what's what's his story where did he where did he come from because apart from this movie i don't know anything else that he's made really oh wow okay yeah so by this point he is already like a very celebrated director in hollywood he's already won like a few oscars and been nominated for others he's made it happened one night mr deed goes to town you can't take it with you mr smith goes to washington and then the oh. and then World War II happens. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize he directed Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Okay, I'm familiar with that film, but I didn't realize that was a Frank, a Frank Capra joint, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Well, and another Jimmy Stewart sort of uh, collab, right? And very much in the spirit of this, like all of his movies have a lot of like, a lot about sort of like capitalism, but like he's not really anti-capitalist, but he's sort of, you know, always talking about the little guy and concerned about like the people like Potter, right? The people who are sort of hoarding wealth and their political connection. He's very skeptical of Washington, right? All that sort of stuff. So that's kind of something that runs through all of his films. He's the son of Italian immigrants. So kind of in some ways lived that American dream, which you can kind of see in this movie, rising up through the ranks and like doing what he loves to do and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, right before this, he actually served during World War II in the propaganda arm of the the U.S. military. (laughs) That would explain the section where everybody goes to war in this movie. I was like, "Hmm, this feels odd and out of place, but that sort of explains why. Right, right. And and we have to know how everyone did their part, right? Like, that's (laughs) that's the whole thing. Yeah, so he did a whole series of movies called Why We Fight, which was Mm. literally, like, making the case to the American public of, like, why they should fight in World War II and following the various battles and that kind of stuff. When he came back after the war, he was sort of nervous about getting back behind the camera because he was kind of more playing, I think, a bigger picture sort of role. And I think the thing that struck me is that you can really see in this movie that it's kind of him going back to his comfort zone, right? Right. It's like, 
all of the people involved, like the cast, he's worked with everyone in the cast. All of the, like the crew are all the people that he worked with on some of his biggest hits. Like in particular, you can't take it with you. It's like, there's a lot of shared people between those movies. But then at the same time, he's clearly changed a lot. Looking at this behind the scenes stories, it seemed like he couldn't stop micromanaging this production. (laughs) So like, famously there was a big fight between him and the screenwriters because i said you know before rko kind of commissioned these scripts they didn't quite get it right so he commissions yet another screenwriter duo actually francis and albert hackett to write a new version but they eventually find out that he's rewriting their script afterward with this guy joe swirling and so they actually walk out of the production they're like no we're not going to finish it right And these are very good screenwriters. I think you can kind of still see a lot of their fingerprints on the film. They wrote The Thin Man. um, And so they're sort of doing like the Dashiell Hammett sort of thing. And so like a lot of the dialogue has that kind of snappy noir thing. Lots of like jargon. It's very poetic in in a weird kind of way. But yeah, he was like rewriting all of the script. And they had to, like, do mediation and all this sort of stuff. Jeez. And eventually he actually got a writing credit on this movie as a result. It's no. the only movie, I think, that he produced, financed, directed, and co-wrote. <laughs> but then same thing happens with the cinematography. The cinematographer, longtime collaborator, he also ends up walking off the set. And Frank Capra gives it to his assistant. <laughs> Yeah, there's two credited directors of photography or whatever in the opening test. And I was like, that seems odd for a movie like this anyway. You know, it's not like a a big budget Marvel movie or something like that. It's, you know, not to say that the cinematography isn't good, but it didn't seem like something that, you know, required two cinematographers. But I guess that would explain why. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's, it's always interesting when you hear about these stories behind productions, because especially with a film like this, like we've had this in our collective unconscious for like 60, 70 plus years. You never think about what did it take to make this, right? So it's not <laughs> totally. until like afterwards, you're just like, this movie's considered one of the greatest Christmas films, one of the greatest films of all time, but you don't think about like, there was a lot of trouble behind this production. You, like, you never think about that. You only think about that final product. Yeah, exactly. And so really, this is kind of like a turning point for Frank Capra. And he makes like one more, I think, major production, A Hole in the Head. And that's pretty much it. This is his one of his last major movies. This is the last movie to get an Oscar nomination. So this was 1946. He died in 1991, and he didn't make oh, another wow. film of note until like he passed away, basically. Like, like you're saying, Daniel, it's just really interesting to think of this movie in that light of being kind of like the twilight of this guy's career. It's really contentious behind the scenes, and yet the product is this Christmas movie that's so beloved. Yeah. I want to sort of dig into the the beloved factor because my understanding, and Nate, correct me if I'm wrong, is that this movie was maybe not so beloved when it came out. Like, it really found its audience much later in its lifetime. So is is that accurate? Was it well-received when it first came out? Yeah, so it was just really mixed. It did okay at the box office, but I think one of the big problems is that it had a huge budget, right? It was, you know done by this brand new production company that Frank Capra started up. And the budget for 1946 was $3.7 million, right? So, yeah. And you don't necessarily, like, see it all up there on the screen. Like, it looks like, you know, lots of movies of the time in many ways. I mean, I will um, say this, the snow looked really good. That's, that's right. some of the best fake snow I've ever seen. So if, oh. if most of the budget went towards the fake snow, kudos. Well, there's a, again, there's a story there. 
But I think one of the reasons why it did cost so much was that they built the entire town. Oh, really? So, yeah. So it's a four acre set on the RKO Ranch, 300 yard long Main Street, 75 stores, 20 full grown oak trees that Holy they moved shit. and built this town out of, right? So, like, that, I think, probably was a lot of it. There is also the snow, which was sort of innovative at the time. And then on top of that, I think it seems like there was a lot of stuff in post as well that may have contributed to the cost. And then in the end, it only makes about $3.3 million at the box office. Oh, So wow. it, doesn't, it doesn't make back its budget. The production company goes out of business. But it gets pretty good reviews. Not great, but kind of mixed. And it's nominated for a bunch of Oscars. It only wins one, which is a Technical Achievement Award for the snow. Oh, oh wow. Okay. There um, you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, they, they basically invented a new way of doing movie snow. Because, get this, before this, it was painted cornflakes mm. that they would drop. Wow. And that, Okay. That would have been yeah. loud. Yeah, well, then that was the problem, is that it was very loud. It was like you would step on them, and it would crunch and make all this noise. And so they invented a new way of doing it that actually used basically like soap and chemicals and stuff okay. to kind of create the flakes, which I think is basically how they still do it on a lot of sets. And like when you go to an event or something where they have fake snow, it's that's what it is, right, if you're in right. L.A. or whatever. And uh, it was using all this post-war technology. So it was like right after the war, they were taking advantage of all the new stuff and inventing this new thing. And it allowed them to do all those elaborate snow scenes. Because again, this was shot in L.A. And uh, that's why Jimmy Stewart's sweating in some of those scenes. <laughs> right. I mean, that does, that does explain it. <laughs> so even, um, even the ice scene with his little brother, was that also shot? like That I don't know it? for sure. Okay, okay. Because yeah. there, there are moments that look like real wintertime. And I'm, I've always had this, I think part of it is growing up in Canada where like we actually have seasons and like most films are made by Hollywood executives where they live in LA and they don't have seasons. <laughs> but I am always like in love with movies that feature snow because like winter is such a long period, especially in Canada. Like our winters can be very, very long. So seeing that reflected on screen is, I, I get a little nice, like, little warm glow in my heart yeah. whenever I see, like, winter. Yeah. Pro snow looks magical on cinema. In, in well, yeah, cinema, I mean, right? snow is beautiful, it's, and it, like, yeah. when it's lit beautifully, you know, like, one of my all-time favorites, the girl with the dragon tattoo, like, snow has never looked more inviting and appealing, and also more, like, bone-chillingly cold. <laughs> right. Um, I don't think I would describe that movie as inviting and appealing. Well, but... <laughs> no, the movie isn't. The movie isn't. But, like, Sweden seems really nice. I want to go visit. Snow looks great. Snow looks great. <laughs> yeah, but but what's interesting, too, is that, like, that's always one of the things that I loved about The Simpsons was that they would have these sort of seasonal episodes where, like, winter is actually shown and represented and not necessarily just for christmas you know you got like the mr plow episode you have episodes sure, yeah. that focus on snow but aren't just the one-off christmas episode like most sitcoms so yeah i don't know i've always loved seeing snow on film and this is gets a, you know it ticks that box it's got great snow good yeah. good good fake snow <laughs> well so the the way that this movie actually finally becomes popular is due to a clerical error <laughs> okay so so basically in 1974 production company screws up and doesn't renew its copyright on the movie. Ah. Uh, right. And so the result is that TV networks can air it for free. Oh, wow. Right. That makes a lot and of sense. And so they do. Everyone airs it, like, constantly throughout December. And apparently I was reading some articles looking back on the TV history of this. By the 1980s, no matter where you lived, in the United States at least, it was playing nearly every day throughout December. Wow. 
So you could always find it on, wow. right? Which is why everyone watched it, why all the Simpsons writers watched it growing up probably and were familiar with it, right? It was just everywhere during December. And apparently in 1992, this is wild. I did, did not know this at all before reading this. It's a Wonderful Life became the first American program ever to be broadcast on Russian television, reaching oh. over 200 million Russians. Wow. There you go. So there you go. So in other words, it's a TV hit. That's kind of the bottom line. But then what happens is, about almost exactly 20 years after the, the clerical error, right, in 1993, the Supreme Court case allows Republic Pictures to reclaim the rights. And so after that, it's no longer on every television network anymore. It's only on NBC. It's so funny because, like, again, I don't remember this ever being on as a kid. Like, right. I, I, I distinctly remember, at least when we were in, like, high school or whatever, like, TBS would always have a Christmas story marathon. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, 24 oh, yeah. hours yeah, straight. Yeah. 24 yeah. hours of a Christmas story, which, ironically, still never watched the movie until, like, <laughs> I was in university. But for I just, like, distinctly remember always seeing the ads for a Christmas story and, like, I think it's a similar thing where, like, they must have just had the broadcast rights and they're like, we're going to just milk this for all it's worth. In Canada, like, I remember CBC airing it. And I remember it would mm. air on Christmas Eve. Yeah, this feels mm. like a movie CBC would air. Yeah, mm. so, like, I had a way of watching it, like, on VHS or DVD. But I remember whenever we went, like, to a family member's house on Christmas mm. Eve for dinner, we'd turn on the TV and, like, oh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life is on CBC. It would be airing, like, at 8 o'clock at night. That would be, like, the Christmas Eve movie they they would play. Totally. What if they still do? But it's so interesting, Nate, because like so much of what we've discovered, you know, through doing this show is that like these movies that aired constantly on TV tend to be these movies that the Simpson writers have this deep knowledge of because prior to the home video market, that was how you rewatched movies over and over again. They would air them annually and like that's what my dad said about The Wizard of Oz, The Sound of Music. These perennial films mm-hmm. that you knew, oh, they're going to air it this year. I can't miss it. This is going to be my opportunity to see it again, which for our generation, it's just not a thing. And certainly for the generations after us. <laughs> yeah, everything's accessible all the time. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember, like again, growing up, Sunday night would be like the magical world of Disney. And be like, totally. oh my god, this movie, Monsters, Inc. is premiering tonight. Like, it's been such a, like, because <laughs> you've been waiting for so, like, whatever film it was. It's like, having a premiere on TV was such a big deal. And right. I haven't thought about that until this very moment. I'm like, wow, like, it's so true. Like, that was such a moment in time where you would wait for something to be available. Like, well, once it was on TV, like, that was a big deal. Yeah. Well, and wow. it's it's funny. I was talking with my parents this weekend about the Disney vault, like mm-hmm. how it was a huge <laughs> deal when a film was finally released from the vault and you could go out and buy your overpriced $45 VHS and a plastic clamshell, oh, yeah. which my parents still have all of them. And as my dad said, yeah, they're just taking up space Same in the closet here. like because we don't even have a VCR to watch these on, but nope. we still have them for whatever reason. So, I mean, so the end result is that this movie ends up becoming kind of like this classic for a whole generation, multiple generations of people. And in the end, Frank Capra was sort of like, this is his favorite movie that he's ever made. Mm. Jimmy Stewart says it's his favorite role he's ever played, right? And I have this quote from Frank Capra that I I liked that kind of sums it up, but he says, It's the damnedest thing I've ever seen. The film has a life of its own now, and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president. (laughs) I'm proud, but it's the kid who did the work. I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. I just liked the idea. 
See, there it's not a Christmas movie. Well, so, so from the, the, from the mouth of the director, Nate. <laughs> so, even the interesting thing about the short story guy too. That story takes place on Christmas Eve, right? Yeah, and that would and that would be a Christmas movie. No, 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 no. Oh, here See, we go. See, he says he <laughs> says that it's also not a Christmas story because apparently the author was actually. I, it's very ambiguous in all the writing I've seen about, but he was of mixed religious background. So to him, he was like, this actually is non-denominational. Yeah, it's which just is December like, 24th. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's just December 24th. <laughs> and it's a mysterious stranger on a bridge, not an angel. Yeah. So, you know, he saw it as this sort of like universal tale. You know, I mean, I don't know. I think that's kind of shaky ground, but... That's the way he saw it, too, was that it was kind of more about the opportunity to kind of have this perspective on your life that you you wouldn't get in, in your normal day to day. So should we dump, jump into the actual movie itself? I feel like we've done a lot of Yeah, background. yeah, yeah. Let's dig into it. We usually like to start this conversation by talking about the performances that sort of spoke to us. So, Daniel, what was your favorite performance in the film? I think Jimmy Stewart, you have to acknowledge him first. This is his film. From beginning to end, he has a lock on my heartstrings. And like it could just be like the simplest thing that he does. It's like in the smallest little movements in his face, the little intricacies in his face that you feel everything that his character is feeling. He can, He's the most positive. He wants to help everybody. He's a good person. But you could see that every time he is doing something for the greater good, even though it's not benefiting himself, that's starting to weigh on him. And I think that pays off so much at the end of this film when he does finally have his breaking moment, right? And again, mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart's phenomenal. I love Donna Reed in this film, too. I think she's so lovely. I had such a big crush on her growing up watching this movie. <laughs> uh, again, growing up, I'm like, oh, it's black and white, but, you know, they're not that much older than me. And then you're like, oh, never mind. This is, like, long before my time. <laughs> they're dead. They're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're... She, she is no longer with us. But also, I have to say, Lionel Barrymore, like, he used to give me such anxiety watching this movie growing up because he is mm-hmm. such a bad guy in this movie he is such a mean spirited and just awful human in this movie he would be the guy that you'd want to boo whenever he was on screen are you saying boo or booerns i was saying boo and and it's funny that you know you see a lot of parallels to who his character is to leaders and people in power today like that archetype is alive and well in people and i think lionel barrymore obviously for like from the, the whole Barrymore family, like there's a long line of people in that family, but he is so scary as Mr. Potter in this. Yeah, there's something remarkable about his performance in that it is it's cartoonish in how evil he is. Right. And yet he's not playing it cartoonishly and he still comes off as being incredibly menacing. It's 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 a very fine line. And, I th- you know, again, Barrymore is certainly adept at this. And again, tying it back to a Christmas Carol, quite famously played Scrooge in radio adaptations so he sort of has a lock on that type of character Mm -hmm. obviously scrooge has this sort of denouement where he he changes his ways and and nate like you said there's an alternative universe where the guardian angel shows up to mr potter and maybe you know the story goes in a different way but yeah his performance it resonates off the screen in a way that i was very struck by as obviously to jimmy i dare you put it perfectly when you said like this is his film it is the quintessential jimmy stewart movie the irony being that when i think of jimmy stewart i always think of uh, not necessarily it's a wonderful life but the jimmy stewart it's a wonderful life reference in the simpsons where where he, he's at the bank and oh, i don't have your money here it's at bill's house and at fred's house but 
what I was struck by in this was sort of seeing him in his earlier years with a more youthful vitality. Although, as I said to Nate before we started recording, like the idea that he's supposed to be college age is uh, is a real stretch. Yeah, it's that varsity sweater for sure. You know, like, like maybe maybe that'll age him down. <laughs> yeah, like he definitely looks younger than the Jimmy Stewart I remember, but mm. I don't know that I buy that he's supposed to be like eighteen years old. Certainly, yeah. especially like when he's first introduced. There's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of actors from that time. I think that we look and like, man, like you're supposed to be like twenty four years old or something like that, and it's just like, oh no, you actually were because like everyone was like born old looking. I think in that yeah, they, everybody <laughs> looked so old back then. Yeah, I mean, like the crazy thing too though is like that dude also served in the military as well. And like, yeah, no, so for like, sure. He had like some crazy life experience, like right before this and probably has PTSD when he's like working on this movie. Mm-hmm. So like, I think even if you look at the movies he made right before the war and then look at this, you're like, he looks a lot older. Oh yeah. But yeah, it, it's an amazing performance and his distinctive way of talking, of course, like kind of burns it into your brain. Yeah. Like so many of the lines are just like, I hear him saying it. I can't like remove it from his voice you know and just right. like his crazy drawl yeah it's like <laughs> I, I i want a big one you know like when he wants the, yeah. the suitcase like it's it's so distinct yeah exactly yeah it is a phenomenal performance but not to be outdone by the rest of the cast because daniel you hit it on your head you got mr potter who is menacing as all get out and donna reed who i literally halfway through the movie texted nate to be like i think i have a crush on donna reed 100 percent. she's like she's she, like it's it's such a compelling, beautiful performance. Every time we watch it, the thing that, that my wife always says is that, like, if you actually pay attention to what's happening in the plot, she actually saves the day. She's the one who, like, fixes everything. At the Literally, end of the movie. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's kind of, like, and she's got it all under control. She's, like, raising, how many kids do they have? Three or four kids? Mm-hmm. And then, like, like, rallies the town, like, fixes up the whole house, like, She's doing all this stuff in the background that all off of, camera like, is just happening. <laughs> but yeah, she's like an amazing person in the movie and, and it's very, very well played as well. She's she's very charming and is a good like equal to Jimmy Stewart in the movie, too, I think. Actually, before we move on, I, you did mention this, Daniel, and it is, I think, the thing that struck me the most probably on this rewatch was Jimmy Stewart's the section where he finally does snap. It is such a turn because he spends so much of the movie as this sort of like idealized, you know, he's so full of joy and nothing seems to rattle him. But like he reaches this breaking point. And I think that's so integral to the film working because you have to believe that he's at his wit's end, that he would contemplate suicide. And that's where you're glad that you have an actor like Jimmy Stewart because that so easily could like tip over into melodrama or tip over into just overacting not being believable and then when he catches himself and he's like i'm sorry you know play your song and i owe you an apology mm-hmm. too like it's this beautiful moment of seeing someone who just he has hit his breaking point right. but then he pulls himself back and tries to save face and then you know again i can't remember exactly what the line is but mary basically says like can't you leave the kids out of it or something yeah something why do you have to, to torture effect. them why do you have to torture them? Yeah, and it's just like, as a dad myself, that was just such, oh my the God. The thing that gets just... me about that scene is that he apologizes, but it's too late. He's, yes. he's already scared them. Right. right, exactly. And I feel like this is actually another sort of parallel with The Simpsons where it's like, there are episodes where Homer kind of maybe doesn't like get angry, 
but like does things where he really screws up, right? And you have to still be sympathetic with him, but also be mad at him. And finding that sort of sweet spot is so delicate. And I feel like The Simpsons also hits it sometimes with, well, um, yeah. I would say more often than it being Homer, it's Bart. Or Bart, because yeah, too. True, true. I th- you know, the thing that this film really struck a chord with me is it reminded me of some of those Simpson episodes that are so hard for me to watch because yeah. they pack such an emotional punch. I'm thinking specifically about the episode Marge Be Not Proud where Bart shoplifts Bone Storm and then basically like yes. you know has to admit to his mom that he's been banned from the store because he was caught stealing and like the performances in that are so emotional and so heart-wrenching and like again it's a cartoon and like I get so wound up and then I think it's Miracle on Evergreen Terrace where he he Same burns thing, down yeah. the yeah he burns down the tree and then has to admit like no robbers didn't steal the th- like this is all my fault like I'm responsible for this and you have that sort of push and pull of like you feel sorry for him but you're also like mad at him because he's not telling the truth and he's letting things get out of hand and again it's packing this emotional wallop that you would not expect from a 23 minute animated cartoon right but it has these ups and downs as Nate says it's like 70 percent misery to then at the very end sort of like turn it all around and everything's going to be okay and end it with a gag so uh but that sort of parallel while i was watching this like even though i do take issue maybe with how it's structured in some ways does feel very much like those simpson episodes totally well on that note should we dive into some highlights throughout the movie yeah absolutely yeah well so i i I gotta start this off because because you sort of alluded to this that you weren't sure about the structure and like the thing that everyone remembers is at the end so my take on that is that this movie's like a giant rube goldberg machine right so Mm. it's like the first two-thirds are sort of setting all the pieces up right all of the different doodads that all link to each other and then that last chunk is watching the rube goldberg machine actually like do its thing right go off right and so like you know, all the stuff with this childhood and, and you know, meeting meeting Mary and getting stuck and all this stuff and meeting all of these characters and seeing their trajectories, like, that's all part of, you know, allowing the movie to have this, like, impact in the last third where it just kind of, like, shows you what happened to all of these people you've grown attached to. So, like, I think that that's the part of the magic of it, but it does take a long time to get there. And every time I rewatch it, I'm like, Oh, right. And then all of this happens and then this happens, you know, like. <laughs> um, well, I, but... I mean, I literally took note in, in my notes. I was like, it's an hour and 15 minutes before Christmas is actually introduced in this so-called <laughs> Christmas movie. Adam's obsession. <laughs> this is this is this is a movie that is two hour and 10 minutes, which, as we know, I am a strong advocate of no movie should be longer than 90 minutes. So we're already <laughs> on shaky ground. But OK, two hour and 10 minute hour and 15 before Christmas is introduced. But. It's then an hour and 40 minutes before Clarence actually appears on screen. Yeah. The so-called other main character of the film, or at the very least, like, driving force of the most important part of the movie, does not show up on screen until an hour and 40 minutes into this two-hour and ten-minute movie. It's a bold choice. He had a long trip from space, you know? Like, he was was out there (laughs) in his spaceship, I guess, and just flying to Earth. Yeah, fair enough. Hanging out with Joseph and Franklin? (laughs) Yeah, like, I'm with you, Nate, in that you, I understand why structurally you need to have the setup, 
because you're right for the payoff of you never were born and here's the impact you need to understand that and i think what's interesting is that when sitcoms do this the one sitcom that i vividly remember doing a parody of this is that 70s show which daniel you don't know this about me but when nate and i were in high school my nickname was foreman because i reminded so many people of eric foreman that's great Uh, so that 70s show and i we're very close hello wisconsin but I think it's a couple seasons in, and it's basically after Eric and Donna have broken up, and Eric is very despondent. And I don't even think it's a Christmas episode. I think it might be the season premiere of the season after Eric and Donna break up, which is, a, again, an interesting mm. choice that they choose to parody It's a Wonderful Life, not for their Christmas special, because it's not a Christmas movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to let this go. Um But they do the whole thing and they're able to sort of say, like, I wish I had never been born. But what's interesting is that they can get away with doing that because they've had four or five seasons to set everything up. Right. So you understand that impact. So you're right. You do need to have a considerable length for that to have any meaning. But it's still... Like I said, the thing that everybody remembers from this movie doesn't happen until the final act, which is an interesting choice. But I don't know. know how else to do it. Yeah, and I and I think that there are actually some great moments in the setup. Like that's the thing that I think for me Absolutely. carries this movie is that like each scene is like this self-contained story that has snappy dialogue, great acting, an emotional arc to it. You're getting like a nice little like jewel of a scene every time, like pearls on a string, right? That <laughs> lead you along to the ending. So like one of my favorite early scenes is the scene with Mr. Gower right, who's the pharmacist. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a whole setup there, but basically, like, George works for Mr. Gower, and he finds out that, like, Mr. Gower is going to accidentally poison someone, basically. And there's this whole back and forth. He goes to the bank to see his father, and you're introduced to Potter and blah, blah, blah. But the scene where he comes back to the pharmacy and he decides to confront Mr. Gower and tell him that he's uh, going to poison someone that's the first time I cry in this movie because it's a kind of a horrifying scene, actually. Right into the living room right away. Don't you know that boy's very sick? Hey, you need my soda here. You lazy loafer. Mr. Gower, you don't know what you're doing. You put something wrong in those capsules. I know you're really me. You got the telegram and you're upset. You put something bad in those capsules. It wasn't your fault, Mr. Gower. <laughs> Just look and see what you did. Look at the bottle you took the powder from. It's poison, I tell you, it's poison. I know you feel bad. Oh. Don't hurt my story again! Oh, no, Don't hurt no, my no. story again! Oh, George. George. Oh, Mr. Gower, I would never tell anyone. Oh, Jesus. Whew. Powerful. The, both of those performances are un, unreal, I think. Yeah, I was struck by... Maybe that was not the best term to use. Um, (laughs) I was shocked when that scene happened because I didn't remember that from having seen it 10 years ago or 11 years ago or whatever. And just even like the the sound effect that they use, it's so like aggressive and just like. Well, I I, I think I read something that actually he really hit the kid. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised either. But yeah, like the moment of realization on his face when he tastes it and he has like these big watery eyes and you know we learned in the movie as well too that he had a letter that his son passed away as well too so like like he's obviously not thinking clearly and he's kind of shaken out of whatever mindset that he was in and yeah i'm right there with you date that is a moment that like even just watching it now it's so moving and it's so sad but it's so powerful yeah well and this kid who like 
has the bravery to confront an adult about something really serious. And then like he sticks it out while he's being physically assaulted and then still forgives him and says he'll never tell anyone is like, whew, it's a lot. The other thing that, again, like speaking to how this movie hits me differently every time I watch it, the thing I picked up on in 2020 was that his son died during the influenza epidemic. Right. The influenza epidemic. Yeah. Right. There's like all these moments throughout this movie that sort of like touch history, right? Like that and, the, right. and of course, the depression and the war. Um, but yeah, that was another one of those ones that like the, the, t- the year that I watched it at the beginning of COVID, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, God. Um, yeah. So that's that's when the tears start flowing. And they tie <laughs> together so nicely, right? Because you have that moment later on in the film where nobody knows who George is and they're in the bar and he's there too. And yeah. you're just like, oh, like, no, he's this guy's been in jail. Get him out. That's how you know him. You, you guys have been in jail together. And it's just such a moment that has such a great payoff because of this early scene. Totally. And the bartender shoots him in the face with seltzer. It's just so yeah, that, cruel. That moment oh my was God. so heartbreaking yeah. because it's like he's this feeble old man. Yeah, so and degrading. As much as I'm criticizing the structure of the film, I'm not really criticizing it because, again, I don't think there's any other way to do it. And you need it for those payoffs. Like maybe it's just there's too much of it in that first two thirds. But um, this is this is Adam's take on on like every movie. But I think it's just he's got an editor's eye, so it's always like totally oh, fair. You can trim it a little here and there. <laughs> yeah, you don't need all of these stories. Like we don't need to hear about both Bert and Ernie, which uh, you know, like no, it's fine. It's fine. I'd like look. I didn't make a three point seven million dollar. <laughs> successful movie that's withstood this test. Well, we don't know. Maybe, maybe eighty years from now, this podcast will be. But wow, <laughs> we'll see about that. Um, Daniel, do you have any favorite moments from the sort of this early part of the movie, like when he's a kid and you know in in high school and all of that? Right off the bat in this movie, I love the scene of them just sledding because still to this day, my dad will always be like hee haw. Like that's still <laughs> something that he says like throughout the year that's associated to this movie. But I love George and Mary their scenes together I, I love their dance when the when the gym floor yeah. opens up and you know the actor who plays Alfalfa from like the Little Rascals is there and he like opens the opens the floor up and they, they fall in oh that's who that was yeah that's him that's him I was like why does he look familiar I didn't I never put that together that that's okay <laughs> yeah he also has like another weird cameo in White Christmas which is another oh. one that I grew up watching where like Rosemary Clooney and uh, Vera, um, oh, blanking on her nas- last name right now, but like he's their brother that like that oh, who like oh, they're saying like, oh, wow. we're going to meet him. But it's just a picture of him. But it's, like, it's a weird cameo. Uh, but yeah, weird cameo in this one as well, too. But I love that sequence. And then they'll walk home and, you know, that whole sequence of, you know, you want the moon, Mary? I'll, I'll throw a lasso around it. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. And it's just like, that's mm-hmm. so iconic to me. I love that scene so, so much. And, yeah. and it's one of my favorite sequences in this film. Adam might remember that actually at our wedding, we had buttons printed and one of the buttons has that line on it. We had like a couple different sort of movie lines, but I love that scene so much as well. Adore it. Although Buffalo Gals, I could, I could, that, that's like stuck in my head now. Oh yeah. Forever. forever. I, literally, literally as I was, because Nate needed me to send him a copy of the film to pull these clips. 
And as I was like putting the Blu-ray into my Blu-ray reader, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's just yeah, it gets stuck in your head and Always. it won't leave. And yeah, no, I would agree that like for me that sequence with George and Mary, that sort of first date, as it were. It's such a beautiful moment. It's another one of those scenes that's in the wrong hands could so easily tip over into like overly saccharine and silly and just like eye rollingly bad. And yet they play it pitch perfectly and it's so sweet. And then the callbacks to it throughout the rest of the film, you know, when he comes over to her house later and she's playing the Buffalo Gals on the record player or right. and she has the picture of him last the illustration the yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. like there's there's these lovely little callbacks to this moment that clearly was sort of what solidified their relationship it's just this movie is all about that that sort of setup and payoff like again and yeah again exactly and again. yeah for sure yeah I, th- I also think like this this is the first scene i think that we see at night and like all of the cinematography at night in this movie is so beautiful i just think they managed to get such a great contrast. Oh, yeah. Partly, like, mm-hmm. what they're wearing and, like, you know, the flowers are really, like, quite bright in the scenes, even though it's, like, nighttime. I just love that in that scene as well. Do you guys watch the colorized version of the film? Or do you, when you rewatch it, do you watch the black and white? I'm, I'm curious what your preference is. I usually rewatch it in the black and white. I bought the 4k blu-ray at walmart for seven dollars one year i was like this can't be actually how much this cost <laughs> and then when they like rang it through and it was seven dollars like, all right so the 4k disc is yeah it's the black and white version but then the blu-ray which we are using for our clips that's colorized and i i've never understood the idea of colorizing black and white films and and it's such a weird thing to me because like it never really looks good. Even like with top of the line modern technology, like it still looks like it's been colorized, but right. maybe we'll get there eventually. Again, it's one of those Nate's right. Like the cinematography is so arresting. Like I don't think it suffers from being in black and white. It centers it in a, uh, a, a time and a place. Like you sort of associate black and white with a certain era. And this film obviously is evokes that era very much. So that sort of post-war post-depression time. Right. But you know, it's funny, Nate, you alluded to earlier that, like, the $3.7 million isn't necessarily up on screen. And I don't I don't know that I agree. Like, it looks really good for what it is. It doesn't need to look this good considering that it's a fairly straightforward kind of I mean, movie. You Like, so I, I watched for the first time You Can't Take It With You in, like, preparation for this because... Number one, it's, of course, another Frank Capra movie. It's his comfort zone movie that I was referring to earlier. And it also has Jimmy Stewart, Lionel Barrymore, and Mm. Gene Arthur as well. And she was going to play Mary's role. And it feels like a play up on the screen, right? Yeah. It's proscenium sets. It's very flat lighting. You know, it's basically just like you set up the camera and then the the actors and actresses do their thing. Do their thing, thing. yeah. And this movie so does not feel like that. It's such a cinematic movie, right? And it's, you know, like even that scene you mentioned, Daniel, where he goes, I want a big one, right? That freeze frame is like one of the early freeze frames in in like cinematic oh, history. Okay. Capra was beat out apparently by Hitchcock <laughs> with champagne. Um, oh, but I have a film I've never heard of. Never heard of it. Nineteen twenty eight. Wow. Oh, okay. So it's probably one of his like early, early silent films. Yeah. Yeah. But like you know, it's still like early days for those kinds of techniques and the snow and even just like the angles and the lighting is so moody and 
interesting compared to like some of the other movies that even Frank Capra's made. So right. yeah, the scene at the end when he's like running down the street, like it's the iconic scene that's shown in, you know, I sure. think it's like that scene. And then the, uh, the other most iconic scene from the movie, the every time a bell rings scene. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like, it, th- this is a much better looking movie than it probably has any right to be. Yeah. Um, Cause again, even like, even my favorite Christmas movies now, like they're not, particularly like beautiful films i was struck by how how good looking this is nate what's what's some one of your favorite scenes in this yeah i mean i love the end of this part of the film like right before he decides to stay and take on the building and loan thing right they have the board meeting Mm. where mr potter's like i vote that we dissolve this building and loan blah 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 right (laughs) <laughs> and uh, but the thing that's amazing about that scene again, this is the second time I cry, is when uh, when George, when George makes his impassioned speech about like why the building and loan matters, and he's sort of saying that like this rabble you're talking about, they're the ones who do most of the the working and paying and living and dying in this town, and you know couldn't they do do most of that paying and working and living and dying in a decent home, and that yeah. line with always a, with a bath. Me. Yeah. yeah, a home with yeah. a bath. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, that's the line that gets me. Cause, and that is pure Capra. That is, like, oh, yeah. exactly the kind of stuff that he puts into all of his movies. You know, it's in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's even in You Can't Take It With You. Like, all of those sort of subtexts of, like, you know, big banks and, like, and people trying to make their way and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, And it's the second um, time we get to see George stand up to Mr. Potter as well, too. Right? So it's like yeah. he still has, like, that fire against him which is great you see him do it as a kid and then you see him do it now after his father isn't there to hold him back from speaking out which i think which is a yeah. really nice callback to that well and then you have again t- speaking to stewart's incredible performance in this you know shortly thereafter when when the i don't know if it's the head of the board or whatever but like basically comes down and says they're going to keep the building in loan the board voted against potter the only stipulation is that like you have to run it george and, like, there's this look on his face. It's just such a beautiful piece of acting because you can completely read the sort of conflict that he's feeling of, like, well, I don't want to do this, but this is my only choice. And, like, I want to, you know, live up to my father. And, like, it's an amazing moment that's all in facial reaction. Like, it's well, just, it's incredible. I mean, and it certainly helps that, like, it's an extreme close-up, right? Yes. It's like, which they do a couple times throughout this movie where you could just really see nothing but Jimmy Stewart's face and, like doing all sorts of like pretty wild things. So then then we kind of like go into the next part of the movie, right? We have the part where they kind of like finally get together, right? Mary and George. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's another like there are a couple really excruciating scenes. Usually it's when George is being a total asshole. Right. And the scene where he like goes to her house and is just being like this grumpy piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's not and, fun to be around. Always one yeah, of the scenes exactly. that made my stomach hurt growing up. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But then by the end of it, he's you know they have that call with Sam Wainwright where he's like telling them about plastics and they like and that that's when they fall in love basically. Right. It's a weird scene. There's a lot of scenes where there's like a lot of different things happening in quick succession because like that whole sequence is like his brother comes home. And he finds out that he's married and he's not going to run the building alone. They have a, wel- a welcome home party. And then he, like, walks over to Mary's house. And then they talk to Sam. And it's just, like, all of this stuff is happening. And that's all, like, one sequence. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That scene is pretty rough. And then you just, like, cut to their wedding. 
you know? In in the pouring rain. And like at first I was like, are they are people just throwing like an obscene amount of rice? And then it's like, no, no, it's just like it's pouring rain. It's crazy how much rain there is for that sequence. It's an interesting um, choice. I don't love like reading too much into things, but it does feel kind of like par for the course in this movie yeah. of like, you know, yeah, of course it would rain on their wedding. Day. On George's yeah, everything. Totally. There's always going to be something that's going to go wrong for George. Like, and even in the scene when I was talking about earlier with, he had an amazing night with Mary. They danced the night away. They had a wonderful moment together. Five seconds later, car pulls up. Oh, your father had a heart attack. It's like, right. Anytime there is something good happening in his life, it is immediately taken away from him. Right. Yeah, totally. There's, and there's always like five things going on at once. (laughs) Yeah. But then like, this is actually, I think maybe the first Simpsons reference, maybe in the movie they get in the back of the car the cab right and george is telling the cabbie all about like this amazing honeymoon that they're going to be on what we're going to do we're going to shoot the works a whole week in new york a whole week in bermuda the highest hotels the oldest champagne the richest caviar the hottest music and the prettiest wife wow that does it (laughs) (laughs) i love the reaction too but let's the oldest champagne yeah yeah I, and again, like that feels like the sort of like Dashiell Hammity, like snappy dialogue thing. But can you play the Simpsons version of this? I think. Yes, I, I certainly can. Wow, well, Marge, this will be the greatest night of your life. I've been saving up for a new engine for my car, but I'm going to spend it all on us. I'm renting the biggest limo. I'm going to buy you the biggest corsage. My tux is going to have the widest lapels, the most ruffles and the highest platform shoes you ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> so that's from The Way We Was, season two. And that's one of those ones where it's not anywhere on the internet that I can find that that's actually a reference. They don't say it on the commentary, but like after having watched It's a Wonderful Life so many times and then rewatching that episode, I was like, that's gotta be a reference, right? Yeah, like it, it just seems so specific. And it's such a funny riff on that reference too. Oh yeah. The widest lapels. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then shortly thereafter is when there's the run on the bank and then everybody goes right. to the building and loan. And that's where we get the moment that, A, when I think of Jimmy Stewart, but also when I think of It's a Wonderful Life, I think of this scene from The Simpsons. I mean the bank is out of money. Insolvent? You only have enough cash for the next three customers? Just a second here. No, no, I, I don't have your money here. It's in Bill's house and, and, and Fred's house. Hey, what the hell are you doing with my money in your house, Fred? That's so good. <sighs> yeah. Springfield mob mentality. It's uh, <laughs> always it's good stuff. Yeah. No, you feel a bit of that in this movie too. That like the, you know, the town either is gonna like come together to like you know see you out of town or they're going to like, you know, give you a bunch of money. It's hard to say, but they all kind of like have this, this mentality, right? Like there's that scene where he tries to pick up Violet on the street and like go on a date. And then like by the end of the conversation, like there's a crowd gathered around them laughing at him. But yeah, so that's, I think is the first sort of like section where you start getting these Simpsons references, right? So they don't only Mm -hmm. do the end. No, no, no. There's no, like that, sure. at least that chunk in the middle that I, I don't know. It's, it is kind of a weird, like, I definitely did not get that reference growing up at all. Like, did not know that that was a reference to anything, let alone, you know, It's a Wonderful Life. Because it's kind of an obscure one, right? It's not like 
one of those parts of the movie that like, oh yeah, that's everywhere. Everyone always references that. Right. Scene. Yeah. If anything, it's a, it, you, you get that he's doing like, it's a Jimmy Stewart. Bit, right. Right. But you don't necessarily immediately clock that it's that specific scene from it's a wonderful life. Right. So yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff happens after this, right? This is the, the part where like they decide to have a kid world war two happens and there's like a whole montage, <laughs> yeah. right. Of like, all the people going to war. Yeah, that extremely bizarre section where, like, knowing now that he was a propagandist, I was like, oh, okay, well, this this whole World War II section feels a lot more. And I guess also to understanding that this is post-war and, like, so that stuff probably feels... Yeah, it, all- like, well, it, it, like, literally just happened. Yeah. So, so I feel like they were like, we have to acknowledge it. Yeah, like, it's probably a lot less out of place. But yeah, it's probably my least favorite part of the movie is is the whole kind of, like, war interlude thing. Right. But that kind of brings you into like the like crisis moment where the story actually really starts picking up and you're getting close to the beginning of the movie when everyone's praying for him. Right. Right. Um, And that's like when uh, Uncle Billy loses eight thousand dollars from the bank uh, because he's making fun of Potter. And I find this whole section excruciating. All of the interactions. There's just this pit in my stomach the whole time. Like feel terrible for Uncle Billy because he's really trying and just can't keep his shit together feel terrible for for jimmy stewart because because he's like losing his mind blowing up at people you know blows up at uncle billy who he loves and tells him he's going to prison and like all this sort of stuff begs to potter he yells at his family like it's just really awful section to go through yeah the 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 life insurance thing too where he's like the only thing he has as collateral is this like life insurance that he paid five hundred dollars on like it's just they're really, like, kicking a guy when he's down. And, of course, you also have to remember that, like, he didn't even want to do this to begin with, yeah. right? Like, he's given up his hopes and dreams, and now, I mean, obviously he eventually comes to terms and comes to love doing what he does because he's helping all these people and all that, but, like, this is not where he foresaw himself, and now, you know, his life is about to be ruined as a result. Again, it's a testament to Jimmy Stewart's performance that it, it is so gut-wrenching and so affecting because he is able to make these massive swings between, you know, being totally joyous and then just, like, a man that is completely at his wit's end. Yeah. And I think that's what makes Potter so irredeemable as well, too. It's because we know that he's the one who found the money. Right? right, and we know, like us as the audience, know that he has it. So when you see George going to him to plea for a loan, it's what makes it all the more harder to watch because you're just like, man, like he has your money and he's still not going to help you. That's how much I loathe this character. <laughs> it's so funny, Daniel, because I was convinced that he gave it back. Like I was oh, like, even even Mister Burns wouldn't keep the money. You know what I mean? Like, that's why he, like, he's so villainous. And then he calls the cops and he's like, you're going to be arrested. And it's like, it's just an obscene level of cruelty. Yeah. Cops and the reporter at their home later waiting for him to get. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's, it's just so awful. I mean, it is interesting because this movie is so much about redemption and so many other characters do redeem themselves in one way or another. You know, at the very end, even like the journalist and the cop and the bank examiner, they all end up giving money to George Bailey in the end and singing along and all of that. But like, it's interesting that Capra does think 
or I mean, this is reading a lot into it, but like he has a character in this movie that like is irredeemable, cannot actually come around and see the light of day. And it's almost like, I feel like all of those people, like the, you know, the bank examiner and all that, they're kind of like the middle rung people that are kind of just doing their job, right? And like, if given the opportunity, they can turn it around. But it's like he's saying, no, but there are actually people in the world who truly are, you know, malicious people who just want money and don't care about anyone else. And that's why we need people like George Bailey to like stick around and not leave the gaping hole in their community. But yeah, the scene that really captures Jimmy Stewart's sort of performance the most, I think, in this movie is the scene where he's praying at the bar. Again, there's a sort of crazy story behind this, but in an article, actually in a religious journal, because Jimmy Stewart was actually very religious and a Republican, interestingly, he wrote about that scene that like, basically, I'll just read it. He says, as I said those words, right, the prayer, I felt the loneliness, the hopelessness of people who had nowhere to turn and my eyes filled with tears. I broke down sobbing. And the interesting thing is that like, it wasn't intended to be a crying scene. He wasn't supposed to cry in that take, but he just started doing it naturally. And it was, it was actually like the shot is actually from pretty far away. And Frank Capra, there's a lot of stories uh, on set of him kind of recognizing the serendipity and leaning into it. And so he realizes that this is like a really special take, but he also realizes that it may not be like reproducible. So Hmm. he wanted a close-up, And so Frank Capra's solution was he just like did it all in post. He actually like sat there in post and enlarged frame by frame by frame by frame by frame until he got that close-up at the end of that scene. So like that sort of slow zoom in you see is actually all done in post. That's wild. Um, Which is like... At the time, again, would have been incredibly labor intensive and probably cost yeah. a bunch of money yeah. to do. But like <laughs> he, he thought that like this performance was worth that extra time to like right. make the shot work. So I, I love that that scene so much. That's incredible because I think I think at the end of the day, George Bailey's superpower in this film is empathy, right? And I think for yeah. better or for worse, this, w- whether it gets him to the point that he does at the end of the film that's still something that he he is always going to be that empathetic person. He's always going to be that good person no matter what, right? He is always going to choose helping rather than not helping. So I think yeah. it, it, to think of like, man, I'm going to, I'm gonna, every time I watch that scene now, Nate, I'm going to be thinking hmm. about like, damn, Frank was doing this in post. What? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, and like Jimmy Stewart has a lot in common with George Bailey. Like that's the other thing that's really interesting. And I, I didn't talk about that th- that much, but So Jimmy Stewart actually studied architecture at Princeton and then decided not to be an architect and became an actor and like went off and did all these things. He's from a small town in Pennsylvania called Indiana, Pennsylvania. After the war, he actually was like, yeah, you know, I think this acting thing is really frivolous. I'm going to go back to Indiana, Pennsylvania and work at my dad's store. Wow. And like, so he actually was going to go do that. And Lionel Barrymore was like, Look, George, (laughs) you have a gift and you need to keep doing this because you were like an amazing talent and you need to actually like share that talent. And that's why he did this movie. But like he's almost like Jimmy Stewart's almost this alternate reality, George Bailey, where it's like, what if George Bailey did actually follow those opportunities and left? And so like, I feel like you got to see a little bit of that in this performance too, of like him also looking at this character and being like, this is kind of this alternate reality version of me. And he was going to go back to his father's business to run it. 
like he clearly has that in him too, right? Like as a person, that's drive to be there for other people and just the value of, of family, community, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, it's a very interesting scene and I, I it gets me every time. That's like, yeah, I don't know, three or four cry. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I, 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 what, what's the cry count at this point in the film? I'm not yeah. sure. So anyway, so that's finally what sort of leads him off to the bridge, I guess, right? Again, like this is where the cinematography is just like amazing. More night cinematography, the snow's in full force. And then he looks down at the water and the water's like, you know, again, such high contrast, like mm-hmm. black and white, just kind of like ebbing and flowing. And then we get introduced to Clarence, finally. Finally, make, <laughs> he decides to join us, finally. Yeah. yeah. An hour and 40 minutes into the film. Yeah. yeah. And an hour and 40 minutes into this podcast. So it lines up. There nicely. you go. Oh, oh there really? you go. Look at that. <laughs> Um, this has so, actually been a live commentary. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we just didn't tell you. So he shows up. I mean, what do you what do you think about him in this? Uh, I don't even know what the actor's name is actually off the top of my head. I mean, I think he's a, adorable. Like, I love when he's in the bar and trying to decide what to order. Yes. He's like, hmm, a hot buttered. Ro- no, no, I can't get that. And it's, it's just he's. <laughs> But it's also, like, definitely a performance that could only exist in this era because, right. like, it is so – it's not – over the top isn't the right word, but, like, it's such a, like, a character actor performance that, like, nowadays just – Yeah. Unless it's, it's on The Simpsons. Char- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, All it, of these it, characters could be on The Simpsons pretty Yes. Much. <laughs> but it, if if this movie were remade today, like, that character would have to be, be played by, like, different. a Morgan Freeman or, like, you know, one of these, like, venerable, like, Hollywood royalty. Right. 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 Whereas in this, it's just kind of like this goofy, chubby, schlubby doofus yeah. who – you know, it's just trying to get his wings. And I think that's why I'm so frustrated that Clarence doesn't show up for an hour and 40 minutes. Because it's like, nah, he's, he rules. Like, I want, yeah, I, want I, don't know. I, I don't know. Like I think any longer I, and he would have overstayed his welcome, in my well, opinion. Well, maybe that's true. Like, maybe that's just true, enough. But. It's funny, though. Henry Travers, who plays Clarence in this, he's also in The Bells of St. Mary's, which is the film that is playing as George is running through the street right. in this film as well, too, which is a nice little Easter egg that we uh, they have there for us go. in this film. That's fun. Yeah. That's fun. But Clarence, um, is, Clarence is cool. I mean, like, he has a very distinct voice, which I think is interesting when you pair it with Jimmy Stewart, who has another very distinct voice. So them going yeah. at it is a lot of fun. And I, one, of, one of my favorite little moments that I think is just such a beautiful little touch is when George is like, I wish I was never born. And he's like, okay, I'll grant you your wish. And he goes, say, say that again. And yeah. he's like pointing to yeah. his ear. And he's like, I haven't heard out of that since my brother had his accident. The beginning and of it's the like, Rube Goldberg machine, my friend. Yeah, but it is but it is a beautiful, like <laughs> yes. subtle, blink and you miss it kind of thing of like, no, this is how you know that everything has now immediately right. changed. You and don't need the sound effect, like the, like the magical yeah. sound effect or whatever that you'd have in a Disney movie. It's a very subtle... Like instantaneously, everything has changed. Yeah, and then, it, like you said, Nate, it just it, now the snowball has begun to roll down the hill, and we're going to see the impact mm-hmm. of George no longer existing. But before we do that, do you recall mm. Homer's guardian angel on The Simpsons, <laughs> Colonel Clink? <laughs> yes. Or well, first it's Isaac Newton. You're Isaac who? Right. <laughs> he shows up, and then I think it's the episode where Homer is like contemplating cheating on Marge. And then, you know, he has this moment where he's in the phone booth and he tips over and sees his guardian angel. And 
it's kind of a mashup between like It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol because there's like a scene after that where they're flying over the the scene, which is very A Christmas Carol. And then if I recall correctly, he's actually very happy in the fantasy with Mindy and Marge is the president of the United States. (laughs) Yeah, it worked out well for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. This dream is over. And it's funny, too, because later in the series, when Homer goes on his hunger strike and (laughs) Cesar Chavez shows up and he's like, why do you look like Cesar Romero? Because you don't know what Cesar Chavez looks like. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly when Guardian Angels visit Homer, they have to be very specifically tailored to his knowledge. That's so good. So anyway, this is where we actually get into the I wish I was never born sort of fantasy Again, like so much happens actually, like moment to moment. Like you just you basically encounter every character that you've encountered mm-hmm. in the movie again. Like all sorts of like scenarios, locations revisited, and everything's different. And it's just this constant like cycle of payoffs. But are there any that's really stuck with you out of the shocks that he experiences? I mean, we alluded to it earlier. The Mr. Gower thing is obviously like the oh. one that packs the biggest wall up. I do love the sort of payoff that we're getting here of like you do start to realize that yes it's the major characters in this story but then also some of these other characters that just sort of have flitted in and out of his life who've who've all been touched by george still though right exactly and it's that's what i think is so beautiful about it is that it's not just you know mary or his brother or his parents it's also these just like these little side characters that bert and ernie like these people that aren't really integral to the plot but ultimately are integral to his life, or he's integral to their lives, I should say. Yeah, totally. This section also, I think, a movie that owes a huge debt to this, and I just, it sort of like immediately popped up in my mind as I was watching it, is Back to the Future. Like this idea of you not understanding the impact that your actions have had on other people. The butterfly effect, as it were, of that that we all have on each other's lives. Yeah, that's a good one. I hadn't thought of that. That's a that's a really good extra credit if you're if you're looking Ooh. for something else to watch. <laughs> the thing that always makes me chuckle a little bit is that Pottersville does feel a lot cooler and more fun than, <laughs> uh, than uh, Bedford Falls a little bit. Like in retrospect, it's like oh well, there's like jazz and and movie theaters and <laughs> places, bars and things. Um, yeah, it's very modern. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, my my coastal elite uh, soul is is happy looking at Pottersville. <laughs> But then it leads to a really great moment where you, you see George kind of break the fourth wall a little bit. And he's staring directly down the barrel of the camera as well, too, which oh, yeah. is another great moment in this film. And like that's also the, the moment where you get basically like the moral of the story from Clarence as well. Right. Where he's the line is strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? I love that line. Like, so much more than the ones where they actually use the title of the movie and then they use the title of the book. Like, the greatest gift, God's greatest gift is life. And, you know, oh, but you had a wonderful life. It's like, no, I think this really gets at it, which is, like, this idea of, like, we're all part of this sort of, like, web of relationships. And if you take that out, like, the web just has this huge hole, right? It's also, it reminds me of... Nate, I don't know if you remember in high school, we watched Waking Ned Divine, which is this movie that sort of predisposes like this character dies and then they have this eulogy for him, but he's there. And it is this funny thing of during the pandemic, we had a family member pass away and, and we went to the memorial service and all of these wonderful things that were being said about them. 
And I had another one of those moments where it's like, it's so sad that we have to wait until someone is gone to Mm. say all these wonderful things. And does anyone ever really appreciate the impact that they've made on other people's lives because they don't get to be there when all of this is said? And isn't the wonderful thing about this movie that George, in a way, gets to experience that? He doesn't get to hear all the wonderful things that he's, the wonderful impact, but he gets to sort of see the other side, the, the negative impacts that his not existing has. And I do think that's the beauty of this film. That's, to me, what sort of packs the weight of everything, is just understanding how these little things that we do can really make all of the difference. What's funny, too, I I think for myself, every time I watch this movie, selfishly, I'm like, what would life be like if I wasn't here? And I think this is only human to think like that, right? And I love what, what you both said, that George gets his wish but he is getting the negative of everything. There's mm-hmm. not really any positives to him not being there, which I think is really important for him to learn in this and immediately makes him want to be like, get me out of here. Like, I do not want to be <laughs> part of this anymore. I don't want this fantasy anymore. Yeah, totally. Well, there is also a, a yet another Simpsons parody of this, which just to, to lighten the mood slightly, the, um, <laughs> the which is a, an educational film that they watch in school, which is a world without zinc. I I love these these bits that they do the fifties educational right, films. Right. Let's just take a look at a world without zinc. What have I done? Oh, think again, Jimmy. You see, the firing pin in your gun was made of, yep, zinc. Come back, zinc. Come back. Come back, zinc. Come back, zinc. I love just this the the line delivery on zinc zinc (laughs) but yeah I love that little uh, clip and of course that's just the tail end but he finds out that his car and his phone doesn't work either so but thankfully George comes back to reality and arguably the most iconic sequence of the film is you know him rushing home and discovering that the town has rallied to basically Save the day, as it were. I I know we've been counting the number of times Nate's cried, but Nate, does this get you every single time as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On and off, and you know, for this whole last bit. I feel like not so much the running, but like as soon as he's home and he's like hugging his family, there's like the composition of the shots. Some of these shots is so beautiful where he's like hugging his kids and the kids are kind of like all around him They're, they look like paintings right yeah and then the, the seat there's a, a shot too where mary comes up the stairs and gives him a hug and one of the kids is on his back and the other two are around his legs like those oh my god those those just get me every time yeah. and then of course like the singing and the and everyone giving the money and all the again you know, Lang Zai, everything yeah yeah and all the characters coming back again it's like all these payoffs of people you've met throughout the movie chipping in um yeah gets me every time I I have to admit that I was chuckling, though, in this sequence, because all I could think of was the sequence in Miracle on Evergreen Terrace, where essentially the same thing happens. Like, the Simpsons' Christmas is ruined because of supposed robbers, and everyone comes back to donate, and and Mr. (laughs) Mr. Burns shows up, and his line is, Does anyone have change for a button? 
And I don't know. I, just, I think that's hilarious. And I just so as the scene is playing out, I was just expecting Mr. Potter to show up and ask for change for a button. Uh, but as we discussed already, no, he's a horrible human being and he never shows up. But Daniel, you already alluded to this. I think my favorite moment and the moment that definitely pulled at my heartstrings was when George gets the Tom Sawyer book from earlier that has the inscription from Clarence of no man is a failure who has friends watching this movie post pandemic, which is like a weird thing to say because the pandemic is not really over, but like in, in 2022 with everything that's gone on and uh, you know, that line specifically really hits differently because, you know, we sort of experienced a period of, you know, when we were in lockdown where like you couldn't see other people and like you, you really started to appreciate just how much, human contact and contact with your friends and all that stuff really, really matters. And so seeing a line like that, like it resonated with me far more now than I think it would have ever before, because it's not just like one of those, like, Oh, this is the thesis of the movie lines. Like it's something that I actually like truly agree with. Me too. Me too. And And I think it's that sequence. It's seeing the inscription on the book and then you hear the bell ringing and again, it's just Jimmy Stewart's delivery when he's just like, when he hears the bell rings, like, oh, every time a bell rings, an angel gets her rings, we hear from his daughter. And he's just like, attaboy, Clarence. It's just like, it's just, just the way he it's says so it. It's so perfect. It's like, it's like instant tears go streaming down my face because it's just such a wonderful emotional payoff to this movie. But it's just like every time without fail when i was rewatching, i'm like yeah, i think i'm gonna hold it together this time and then it's just like had a boy clarence and i'm like nope. damn it it caught me again it just it's just See, it's that, all it takes that's one of those lines that always makes me chuckle a little bit because i always imagine like okay let's strip away the music and strip away the context of the movie and his family's just like hugging him and then you, they just hear him go that a boy, Clarence. And they're like, what? Uh, that? What is it? It's also funny because my my wife came home from work and while I was watching this and she comes into the room, she's like, what are you watching? And, and she's like, oh, are you watching that movie? Uh, you, you know, every time a bell rings, an angel dies. And I was like, that's not the line. But <laughs> not quite. Yes, that is the movie I'm watching. But yeah, so now every time I watch the movie, I'm going to think every time a bell rings, an angel dies. Uh, that would be a very different sentiment. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the other, the other like pretty great parody of this scene is also in When Flanders Failed, when Ned Flanders opens up the leftorium and and again it's actually very similar in, in structure wise to this movie where it's like the whole episode is Homer just sabotaging him successfully <laughs> and then at the very very end he like finally concedes and like helps all of these people come to the leftorium and the last like scene where Ned comes up is like a perfect parody of this Maud is even wearing the same outfit as as Mary and like someone's playing the accordion and like all, there's all these little nods to this scene but it's it's actually very touching as well. And then there's one last one which is in Natural Born Kissers where Bart and Lisa get an alternate ending reel for It's a Wonderful Life which is labeled the what the killing spree ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to put a damper on on all of our our uh well that brings us to my to my favorite section of the show which is what we call the parts that seem like simpson jokes but aren't daniel was there anything in this movie that sort of stuck out to you as feeling like maybe be more at home in a simpson episode i think it's one of the ones that we were talking about a little bit earlier i think the 
whole dance sequence at the school <laughs> with the pool. Like with like that seems like just something like Bart would pull and like, oh, like Bart got the keys to the gym and he's going to open it while people are dancing and they all go in. I, I feel like that's something that would be right out of a Simpsons episode. Because when you think <laughs> about it in the context of this movie and what we just finished talking about, where it's like, here's this big emotional payoff. And then it's just like, here's this silly moment where everyone's dancing and falling to a pool. It's, it's so right. interesting seeing that these come from the same movie. One of the things that immediately stuck out to me was the scene where Mr. Martini is like leaving his current house to move into his new house. He's got like this thick, like borderline racist Italian accent. And then like a slew of children come out. And it just reminded me of the scene in The Simpsons where Cletus ends up getting too many coupons for the free pretzels. And then he just starts calling out all of his kids. Come on, Tiffany, Heather, Cody, Dylan. And he goes on and he lists like the 25 children that he has. And like, that was the thing that immediately came to my mind. Cassidy, Zoe, Chloe, Max, Hunter, Kendall, Caitlin, Noah, Sasha, Morgan, Kira, Ian, Lauren, Qbert, Phil. Potter is obviously very Burns-esque and like his... His toady is very much like Smithers. Yeah. You know, just doing as he's told. I actually think on the commentary that at one point they do say that Burns is actually modeled partly after Mr. Potter. And both mm. in terms of like the character, but also the voice, I think, is also modeled a little bit off of Mr. Potter and Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly in those early episodes where Burns really is just the evil owner of the nuclear power plant. And obviously, as the show goes on, all these characters become more developed. But yeah, right. in those early seasons, he really does feel much more like that character and then i also love the moment when they come home to the house i guess it's after their wedding and uh donna reed is cooking a like rotisserie chicken but she's using her record player as the like means of the rotisserie i don't know it's such a silly thing that feels very like simpson-esque because it's just not realistic one of the one of the moments that always gets me that my wife and i quote to each other all the time is the part in his sort of fantasy where he's asking Clarence, like, where is Mary? Where, where is Mary? And he's like, you're not going to like it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and then eventually George like gets it out of him, like shaking him and, and asking. And uh, Clarence is like, she's just about to close up the library. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she, so she's just a librarian? Okay. Right, exactly. <laughs> both, both like the way he builds it up and then you're like, oh, okay, she's just a librarian. Yeah. But also just yeah, the God delivery for, of the line is so outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also think like her mother, there was a very much like uh, Agnes Skinner to it where she, yeah, what are you doing down there? And then Mary, which again, this is surprising for a movie from 1940. Yeah. We're making violent love, yeah. mother. But like it just, it very much felt like the sort of no mother, just the Northern Lights kind of situation. But. <laughs> well, okay. So we've sort of talked around it. Final verdict. What do we all think? It's a Wonderful Life. Does it hold up? Did we enjoy it? Like I said, I I was going into this with a little bit of trepidation, wasn't sure what to expect, but I have to admit that it definitely works. I think it's too long, and I think the structure's a little bit weird, but like it pulled at my heartstrings. It's not really a Christmas movie, but... I'm okay with that. Nate, do, do you still, you, oh, I mean, yeah. you cried at least six times, so uh, clearly it worked for you. Yeah, no, it works for me every time. It absolutely is a Christmas movie. Um, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think it, it does, like, tell you a lot about storytelling and The Simpsons and all of that. Like, you, there's so much here to, like, dig into if you're a fan of The Simpsons. You know, like, I'm not a big Christmas movie guy for the most part. Like, there's a few that I really, really love. And I love that this one is a little bit dark and a little bit 
like emotional like it, it it makes me appreciate all the things that i have and the people in my life and all of that and like that's exactly what i want out of the christmas season so yes holds up for me yeah and i think the other thing too is watching it rewatching it i should say i appreciated so much more th- on this sort of viewing the impact that it had, had culturally which i don't think i really picked up the first time i watched it whereas now i could sort of see those seeds of like oh yeah, like I see how this show referenced this or how The Simpsons referenced that or like how other films have taken taken moments from that. Like I said, the Back to the Future thing. Like right. I was actually able to, to sort of chart the genesis and the impact that the film had much better this time around than I did the sort of first time. What about you, Daniel? Like, do, I mean, you, you said this is one of your favorites and I'm, I'm hoping that it remains that even after dissecting it. You guys to, have to completely like ruined this film for me. <laughs> no, no, no. I no, I I adore this film, and I think watching it with the lens this time of its relation to The Simpsons was interesting because you start to see the different character archetypes that you would see in The Simpsons in this town, mm-hmm. right? But you know, this movie still holds up for me. I, I love watching it every year. I do feel very like melancholy after watching it because even though it is such a hopeful ending, this movie is going to drag you over the coals to get there. But I do think that totally. the payoff is all the more for it, and it's worth it at the end when it comes to it. So, yeah, it's a lovely movie, and I totally understand why it is something that has been riffed on and parodied throughout the years because it is that iconic. And I think when you have something that is that iconic, and I think ahead of its time for 1946, for a lot of what we talked about, um, mm-hmm. it is going to resonate and it is going to kind of reverberate into not just the film world, but into pop culture. And I think that's what happened with this for sure. One of the things that we like to do when we do this is offer sort of extra credit, you know, opportunities for people. Is there something that you would offer as a piece of like extra credit? Like, oh, if you love It's a Wonderful Life, but you haven't seen this, you absolutely should check it out. Is there something that comes to mind? There is. And it's a movie that I kept thinking about weirdly while watching it yesterday. And it's not a Christmas movie. And I think it's going to be very out of left fields. But I always think of the movie Click with Adam Sandler, which, again, mm-hmm. so random to bring up. But when you think of it, it's like that is a movie that it's, it's masquerading as a comedy, but really is a movie about a, a person who is trying to fast forward through life the things that he doesn't care about, only for him to realize the things that he was fast forwarding through were the most important. And I saw a lot of parallels right. while watching it. And if you are looking for something that's like totally on the opposite spectrum in terms of Christmas vibes and everything like that, I would say (laughs) check it out because at the end of the day, the themes of the films, they can be very similar. And it is one of those movies that it's such a 2000s ass movie as well too. So (laughs) forgive me for that, but there's a lot of heart and moments in that movie where I'm like, Oh, we are getting very deep and dark when I did not expect it from a comedy, just like you would feel the same in it's a wonderful life. Expect like thinking of something from a, from a Christmas film. But if you are looking for something a bit more Christmassy, I'd say if you somehow have not watched A Christmas Carol, start with the Muppets version, and that's the only one you need to watch. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's that would be my extra credit. It's like <laughs> the what I maintain is the definitive version of A Christmas Carol. I've gotten into fights with people from work about this because <laughs> there are a lot of people who they want to pick the Alistair Sim version, which isn't even technically called A Christmas Carol. It's called Scrooge. But like now we're getting pedantic. I don't like that one. And then there's the like borderline unwatchable creepy motion capture jim carrey one which is just terrifying so yeah no my pick is absolutely uh, the muppet christmas carol it's a little more lighthearted because it's obviously kind of a movie more aimed at children 
but it has a lot of the same sort of melancholy there. It rides that line between humor and out-and-out dark moments. And it is the one that, like, I saw that movie in a theater with my dad and my grandfather in 1992 when it came out, and I've watched it every year ever since. So it's just the nostalgia factor is definitely there for me. But I think, I do think it is genuinely one of the best adaptations of Dickens' story, and it really gets to the heart of that story in a beautiful way. And it has the Muppets, and the Muppets rule. Like, (laughs) what can I say? The Muppets are great. So, you know, what about you, Nate? So I have another one that's like very kind of out of left field here. Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Mm. And like, I was trying to think about like, what movie feels this way, right? That like has this same sort of like these moments of like, you know, pit in your stomach, really like awful things. And then these really, really high highs and this sort of redemption story and focused on people and appreciating what you have. And like, I feel like Jerry Maguire actually has all of that. And I feel like the other thing is that, you know, I was trying to think about who sort of inherited the like Frank Capra thing, right? Of like these kinds of stories. And like there were a few people we actually, we looked at the Karate Kid earlier in the season and like John G. Abelson's definitely doing some of the Capra stuff. But he's even more of a kind of like, you know, like feel good underdog story thing. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But I actually think like Cameron Crowe and James L. Brooks actually probably are the two people that kind of like get at that same sort of like, all the feels, <laughs> you know, and these stories that actually can be really, really funny sometimes, really like awkward and hard sometimes, mm-hmm. really uplifting at other times. So I think I would check that out if you're looking for something that just feels like it's a wonderful life, but obviously not a Christmas movie. But also, too, I think like to the James L. Brooks point, like The Simpsons, like yeah. it really, it, that was the thing, as I said before, really struck me about this. I can't think of many other shows that really can have that emotional roller coaster in such a compressed time and really kind of come out of nowhere because one week can be like a wackadoo crazy adventure where they go to itchy and scratchy land (laughs) and it's just pure fun zaniness and then the next week you can do an episode where bart is shoplifting and and his mother basically disowns him i think that's the magic of the show and why i keep coming back to it over 30 years later is that no other show sort of is able to move across genres and across styles and across emotions in quite the same way. I can't think of any other sitcom that really manages to do that. Most of them just, you know, they stick to like, like we're going to keep it funny. And, and, and maybe there'd be a one-off episode where right. you know, like a cast member has passed away or whatever, and they got to address the elephant in the room. But The Simpsons is always not afraid to change it up stylistically. And I really appreciate that. For sure. So. And speaking of appreciating things, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us for our non-denominational holidays fun fest. I hope this was as fun for you as it was for us having you on the show. Is there anything you, you want to plug while you're here? First of all, I just want to say thank you to both of you for having me on as the first guest. That is a huge honor for me. I am a big fan of what you guys are doing with this show, and I wish you nothing but success. But in terms for myself, you know, I have a show that I do with Shabazz and Anthony, on the movie podcast, we release reviews and interviews with uh, people from across the film industry. And we have a weekly show that we do as well. Where we talk about news. So if you want to follow what we're doing there, you could follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Letterboxd, at the movie podcast. If you want to follow me, I'm DBAPS, D-A-B-Z, because we're in Canada, and all social media as well, too. But yeah, no, this is so much fun. I love talking about Christmas and Christmas movies and to have it packaged with the Simpsons and with you both. It's been awesome. So 
I am just so happy and elated to join you today. Well, we're happy to have you. You guys have been crushing it lately. Like Nate was sort of blown away at the sheer volume of output because like <laughs> it took us almost a year to put out, what, seven episodes? And you guys are putting out multiple episodes a week. And it's incredible what you guys are doing. And everyone should definitely check out the movie podcast. Because if you like our show, I think you'll like their show too. Uh, I so. think so. Um, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So, and as always, thank you, our listeners, for joining us for this very special episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans. We are on hiatus. We're working on season two. We have something really fun cooking. We're not going to spoil anything yet, but rest assured, we will be back. In the meantime, if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review. Share this episode with the Simpson fans or film buffs in your life. And until next time, Nate. See you around the flex. Yeah, we're going to see you around the Plex because we still haven't come up with a better sign-off. Thank you so much, everyone, and we'll see you in the new year. Well, folks, that's the end of the Springfield Googleplex. Non-denominational holiday fun fest. So have a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Quasi Kwanzaa, a tip-top tet, and a solemn, dignified Ramadan. See you around the Plex.